The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Amen. That was Alan Hirsch, uh, friends, and uh, he said, Consumeris- Consumerism is the alternative religion of our day. You cannot build a church on consumers. They will desert you at the moment's notice because they have no commitments beyond their own needs. Wow. In one statement, that one statement is the challenge that we face on this earth of building the kingdom of God. For we have all been discipled into a consumer-saturated mindset that instinctively caters to our own wants and desires. And then we come to Jesus in this faith journey, and he says, die. He says, become a servant of others' needs. He says, pick up your cross and follow me. I want to... Uh, mention one more thing that Alan Hirsch says, and that is that is the next slide. If religion is anything, it is about desire. If religion is anything, it's about desire. And so we're going to be talking about desire this morning, and it's because Paul, in the scripture that was read to us, talks about desire. And um, in Romans 7 that we looked at, if we want to know more about a person, or if we want to know more about ourselves, just look at the underlying desires that are in our hearts, our yearnings, that which impassions us. They are like the keys that unlock uh, the doors of our hearts. They're on the, the keys that unlock who we are at the core. They, they may be misguided at times, but they still unlock a key that reveals our quest for meaning in life. And so it's like the statement of G.K. Chesterton when he said, every man who ever knocked on the door of a brothel is looking for God. This idea that when we understand this, we see that the lusts, the desires, the yearnings of our heart are really a search for our true passion, which is created to be for God. We discover that sometimes... What we really want is not what we really want. Have you ever had that experience that what you really want is not what you're really wanting? Uh, Similar to C.S. Lewis when he said, all of our vices are virtues that have gone wrong. We need to understand ourselves better and especially the deep rivers that flow within us and come to the surface in, in the sins that we don't even want to commit. Well, last week I pulled off of my shelf a book that I have not opened in about 30 years. And it looks something like this, this blue paperback book. And it's simply entitled Alcoholics Anonymous. I was given it by a man named Kent uh, over 30 years ago in my first pastoral ministry in northwestern Ontario. And when I opened up the front inside cover, this is what I read. Something that Kent wrote in there that long ago. He said, Terry, no matter where God takes you in your life, you're going to come across alcoholics. This book contains the answer for many of us. I know now that it is not the complete answer to life, but without this book, I never would have sobered up and found God. We should never misuse the tools God gives us, and this book is definitely one of them, Kent. (laughs) And I remember so well the conversations that Kent and I had after he walked into our church one Sunday morning looking for for God, and he was bothered that I kept talking about Jesus. Well, he came to be a follower of this Jesus that I was talking about, and I remember very clearly 
when we went to a little lake near the church that we went to, <clears throat> went to a little lake and I baptized him there. Now this little book that he gave me actually doesn't even mention the 12 steps. It's a book about all kinds of stories of people who overcame and faced their addiction, their longings in their heart. And uh, if you're familiar with the 12-step program, uh, it goes something like this. It says in the, in the first step that we admitted we were powerless over our addiction and that our lives had become unmanageable. Now you can put in, insert, whatever kind of thing you want to put for addiction or alcohol. You could put, you know, pick your poison. You can put whatever thing you want to, want to put in there. But the thing that I've noticed about every 12-step program that I've ever seen is that the step one always uses the word unmanageable. Unmanageable. And uh, I want to ask why that is. I think it has to do with the fact that we humans have a default setting to want to be in control and to manage our own lives. We live with, I call, the delusion, the lie that we can manage our lives well enough. We can be autonomous. We can master, be the master of our own desires and feelings. We are not out of control. We are living exactly how we choose to live, how we please to live. We are right on track with what we want to be doing. And, but at some level, all of us know that's not true. At some level, that's not true for any one of us. Not just for the people that have addictions, as we call them. It's not true for any of us. It's not true for any of us. Unmanageability in any area of our lives is a hard confession for us to make. And that's why actually denial is one of the main characteristics of any addiction or weakness or sin. We deny it. And we create coping strategies that help us to manage our lives. We try to convince others and ourselves that we're actually okay, that we are in control, that it's not that bad, that we can manage. But how do we manage? Well, we manage with little, little lies, telling little lies to ourselves and others. We manage by living a secret life to the public one that we have. We manage by avoiding certain people or certain topics. We manage by allowing certain behaviors to just slip into our way of living. That's how we manage. And the first step of being healed, the first step of the journey of healing is to admit that we are powerless and that our lives have become unmanageable. I'm belaboring this point, friends, this morning. I'm belaboring this point quite intentionally because we have a lot of wrong ideas in our heads that have not been properly theologized. We have a lot of things in our minds that are not been properly brought to the Word of God, properly taken captive and made obedient to Christ. And one of those ideas is that there are two kinds of people in this world. There's the people that have addictions and they need support groups and therapy and so on. And then there's the rest of the people in this earth, and, and they're managing okay. They're okay, and they're managing their lives on their own fine. Well, that's a myth, folks. That is a myth. The truth is that when God looks down upon the earth and sees all of humanity, he does not see that. He sees, rather, two kinds of people, one group that have acknowledged that they are powerless over certain things and that their lives are unmanageable, and one group that has not acknowledged it. 
That's the two kinds of people that God looks down upon and sees. And we who profess Jesus Christ as Lord must be the kind of people that say, I acknowledge it. That say, yes, I know that my life is not being managed the way God wants me to manage it. That there are areas that I am powerless over, that I am not doing very well in. If otherwise, if we, if we don't take that step, understand that, why do we need a Savior? Is it only for after we die? I would suggest that if you don't identify in that way, you have some major blind spots. I would suggest that you need to take the Bible, open up the law of God, the word of God, and you got let that, that word of God saturate your being and point out how you are both sick and sinful in all kinds of ways. And your life is far from being managed the way that God intended it to be. And the point is that God never intended you to manage it on your own. The point is that God never expected you to live without him. He expects you to be powerless. He expects you to be out of control, unmanageable, until you invite him in and until you access all of the power of the Holy Spirit that he has for you. The scripture reading that we've read this morning uh, sounded much like a testimony of a man who understood exactly what I just described, that he was powerless, that life was not manageable, and we don't know what exactly it was that Paul was wrestling with when he wrote Romans 7, but we know that he came to a point where he had to say, wretched man that I am, who is going to deliver me? Now I think, friends, it's wonderful that it's Pentecost Sunday today because we are talking today about the Holy Spirit. And we're going to be getting into the next stage in Romans 8 and talk even more about the Holy Spirit the power for the Christian of living under a different law than the law of sin and death, which we are prone to live under. And I want to suggest to you that in the scripture that Doug ended with last week, and we will begin with this week, Romans chapter 7, verse 6, it says, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which has held us captive, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. I want you to think about that as one bookend to the passage that we're studying. And I want you to go to the next one in Romans chapter 8 and look at it as the second bookend. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Those are the bookends of this scripture. And in that, that idea, we, we see that what we read between those bookends, between chapter 7, verse 6, and chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, we see this incredible valley that Paul is walking through. And this is the passage that concerns us today. Before we move on to that passage, though, notice what chapter 7, verse 6, and 8, verses 1 and 2 have in common. It talks about being released from the law. There's no condemnation because there's no law over you now. You're belonging to Jesus Christ. And thirdly, you serve in the new way of the Spirit. There's a law that now is, is, is governing your life. It's not the old law that you've been released from. It's the law of the Spirit. Huge truths 
for the Christian to live by. The Christian is not simply a person who lives by a new code book and somehow is able to try harder than others to obey it and be more disciplined to resist sins that try to attack us. A Christian is a sinner who has been released from the code book by Jesus Christ who fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law for us. And because of this deliverance, we have been delighting in him. We are delivered from sin. We identify with Christ. We belong to him. And he gives us him, his very self. He gives us his very own spirit to take up residence within us. But most of us as Christians do not make even a portion of the use of that power of that new law of the Spirit that is at work within us. And in chapter 8, we're going to be talking a whole bunch more about that. He said, I want you to know that the new covenant standard of living is exactly the same as the old covenant standard of living. The difference is that the power of God now is made available. You've been released from the condemnation of it, and the power of God is available for you to live it out. So when we get to chapter 8, we're going to see that in the first 16 verses of chapter 8, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 16 times. But guess what? In this parenthesis chapters that we're looking at today, from verse chapter 7, 7 to 25, guess how many times the Holy Spirit is mentioned? None. None. So you can see. Instead, what do we see mentioned? We see 46 references to personal pronouns like I, me, my, and we see 29 times words like law and commandment. What is it that Paul is trying to convey to us in this passage? In chapter 7, he's trying to say desperately, get into chapter 8, Christian, because that's where you're going to find the power. Don't keep trying to live up to this law in your own strength. He's going to try to get us into chapter 8. Now, every Christian should be striving for that. Every Christian should be striving to live in chapter 8, but we need to pass through the valley of chapter 7 in our experience to get into chapter 8. We can't think of chapter 7 as, as where we want to bed down, as where we want to get stuck, as where we want to find our modus operandi, our way of living. We're meant to find our way of living in Romans 8. Romans 7 is not prescriptive of how to live. It is descriptive. It is descriptive of how we will live if we do not access the power of God by the presence of the Holy Spirit in, his, in our lives. So as much as this might sound like testimony, I want you not to hear Paul saying to us, well, friends, this is as good as it gets on this earth. You're just going to have to accept that you're going to be a slave to sin somehow. You just got to get used to it. No, don't hear Paul saying that. Paul is saying, get past Romans 7 and recognize you can be living in Romans 8. Just as an aside, and I, I was talking to Sean Major yesterday, and I didn't think I'd mention this, but you, for those of you that can, can understand this and get this, is, is it's like in the Old Testament, Romans 7 is this law-giving in the desert, this wandering through the wilderness of the children of Israel. And the, and the Romans 8, the corresponding is getting into the promised land. And there's a whole bunch of stuff to unpack there that we might talk about next week in chapter 8. 
So let's take a look first of all. What is the teaching of Romans 7 really? Paul begins by defending the law and the purpose for which God gave the law. He wants us to see that the law can never be responsible for our sin. He wants us to see that God's laws are holy, righteous, and good. But the effect of the law upon us is actually to to expose our sin, even provoke our sin in some ways. To To do this, he actually quotes one of the Ten Commandments. He quotes the tenth of the Ten Commandments, which is, do not covet. Do not covet. <clears throat> and he's, he says that um, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. But then sin seized the opportunity through the commandment and produced all kinds of covetousness. Covet is this, this idea of desiring It's an inordinate desire to yearn for, to be consumed with the desire for something is the idea of coveting. And it seems seems so human, doesn't it, to covet? I mean, right now I think some of us are just coveting living in a different province than Manitoba. (laughs) We covet. We desire something. It can take over our lives, though. Have you noticed, though, that when you covet, sometimes... The, 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 the increasing of coveting happens when something is forbidden. The moment the law comes into the effect and says, no, you can't do that, the coveting increases. It happened to Adam and Eve, our forefathers in the garden. God said, you can eat from this and this and this and this and this and this, but don't eat from that. <laughs> and guess what they wanted to eat from? That. It, it increases. The interesting thing about the Tenth Commandment is that the rest of the commandments are actually broken through the originating of coveting. The reason Paul chose this commandment as the illustration is because it gets to the heart of the law of God, which has to do with our desires. And and the intent of God's law is to protect our hearts so that other affections, other idols, other yearnings and desires will not destroy that burning desire to be in love with God. Now Paul picks up the next part of verse 13 and he he asks the question, how the law, which is good, ended up doing something bad? Paul answers it by saying it's not the fault of the law, it's the fault of sin. The law just shone the light and then I saw what sin was and somehow seeing it, it made me want to do more of it. Someone illustrated it like this. Imagine that you're going to the ocean. <clears throat> and you get, to, you get to finally go to the ocean. And you're so excited you want to rush into the waves and, and swim or take your surfboard and, and uh, body surf or do something like that. And, and as you're just coming up out of the water, you notice there's a sign on the beach. So you run out and you look at the sign. And the sign says, warning, sharks, no swimming. Now, tell me, in that moment, your day is ruined, but is it the sign's fault? Or is it the fault of the person who put the sign there? No, of course not. You wouldn't think that way. You would, in fact, think how grateful you are for the sign and for the people that put it there because it might have saved your life. Well, that's what the law is like. The law is like the sign. It's essential to know what's right and wrong. It's essential for our protection. 
And we're grateful for the law and those, the, the God who made the law. We're grateful for that. But the law has its limitations. What is the limitations of the law? The law can't get rid of the sharks. The sign can't get rid of the sharks. The sign can't help me overcome if I get caught by a shark. And similarly, Paul found that the law doesn't get rid of sin. And the law can't help me when sin comes attacking me. It's powerless. Now you need to know that we're talking about Paul here. Paul, the law-abiding Pharisee, the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of Hebrews, who had a bar mitzvah when he was a boy. That word bar mitzvah means a son of the law. Paul was, had graduated from every level of law-knowing, law-observing, law-abiding religious experience that was possible in the day. Paul had graduated from it. But after Paul had obeyed all of the law of Moses to his best ability, he, at the end of it all, came out of that experience and says what? He says, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? You see, Paul understood that all the law, knowing and trying to abide in the law, could not deliver him from the inner desires that sin had created in his life. In fact, what he found out was that the law being studied and known and seeking to obey that law only awakened the monster more that lived within him, only opened the pen of the wild horses so that they could run out and have havoc with his body and the members of his body. And so let us read about Paul's experience. We'll begin with chapter 7, verse 14. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want to do, but, the, but I do the very thing I hate. Verse 19, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. <laughs> not to make light of it, but someone called this the golfer's verse. The good that I want to do, I don't do, and the, yeah, forget it. All joking aside, we need to be honest, don't we, with ourselves. We need to be honest about the desires of our hearts. Because like Alan Hurst said, if, if religion is anything, it's about desire. Are you honest with yourself about your desires? Do you see your, how your life is perhaps not lived as God designed it? That maybe you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. It cannot be managed by you. You are powerless to live that way. You are powerless to love God that way. Can you come to God and admit your powerlessness? How far you fall short. In fact, 1 John chapter 3 or four, chapter 1 verse 8 says, if we, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We call God a liar. Paul was painfully aware of his inability to manage his sin. Verse 18, he says this, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability 
to carry it out. You saw, you saw this, this inner desire, but the inability to carry it out. There was this disconnect between what Paul's heart wanted and what his body lived. Listen to what he says in verse 22. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You hear the desperate tone. Maybe you understand the experience that Paul was facing. The cry should somehow resonate with your voice, your inner experience. You're wrestling with sin as well. I remember speaking with a man in a former church where I pastored and um, talking about this very idea that somehow we must be desperate when we come to God and put faith in Jesus, and he could not understand that concept. He said, when I became a Christian, I wasn't desperate. And I think to this day, he misses the point that Paul's describing here. We must not think that the only desperate ones on earth are those whose lives have become unmanageable because of an addiction. We must not take the posture of the older brother in the prodigal son story. The message of the gospel is that we are all desperate for a savior. And just because you have not fallen prey to a socially unacceptable and destructive vice does not mean that you are managing your life the way God intended you to live your life and that you also don't have unbridled horses that have escaped from the pen in the desires of your life. Oh God, help us. There is no dividing line between the healed of this world and the unhealed of this world for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we're all in the process of being sanctified. That's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you Christians, are you now being perfected by the flesh? I mean, come on. Martin Lloyd-Jones says in the first four chapters of Romans, the apostle is proving that no one can be justified by the deeds of the law. And now in chapters 7 and 8, he's saying, and no one can be sanctified also by the deeds of the law. You need the Holy Spirit. None of us has the power to live a godly life. We fall miserably short, and that's why the good news is so good, because what Jesus did opened up the way for God's Spirit to make your body into a temple of the living God where he lives, and the Christ life is lived through your, your, your body. Thanks be to God, Paul ends. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Let me ask you, how is this message landing on you today? How is it landing on you? Just take a little inventory right now with me. Can I ask you a few questions? Is it offensive for you to think of your life as powerless and unmanageable? Does that offend you? Do you still carry in your bosom, in your mind, this we-they attitude and judgment of human society and look down upon those who, whose lives are unmanageable because of an addiction, but, oh, not you, you're fine. 
Do you still, do you, have you taken inventory recently of, of the desires of your heart? And whether you can get overboard excited about something, but when it comes to opening your Bible, when it comes to praying, when it comes to worship, eh. Folks, we all get it. Just admit it. <laughs> We're powerless. We can't manage well. You want to read the Word of God with passion and power? You need the Holy Spirit for that. You want to pray up to God with passion and power? You need the Holy Spirit for that. You want to worship God the way He deserves to be worshipped? You can't do that in the flesh. You need the Holy Spirit for that. Paul is trying to get us out of Romans 7 and into the solid ground of Romans 8, into the promised land where the promises of God are made real in your life. Not just a carrot dangling on the end of the stick and, oh well, this is as good as it gets, Christian life. I don't want to live that life, folks. I've lived it far too long. And God doesn't want you living it either. As I said at the beginning, we're, we're going to be getting out of this chapter 7 next week and into the chapter 8, the clean and fresh grace air of chapter 8. You know, Andrew Murray <clears throat> said this. He said, the cause of the weakness of your Christian life is that you want to work it out partly and to let God help you. God's kind of the, the co-pilot. And that cannot be, he says. You must come to be utterly helpless to let God work, and God will work gloriously. God loves to, to, to show his power through weak and, and dependent vessels like you and I. So next week we're going to be talking about the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. We're not passive in that. We're active in that, but Jesus, by his spirit, does the heavy lifting. Let's pray together and ask God to get us ready to hear his word next week as we open up chapter 8. Oh, pray. Father God, we thank you for this scripture right now. And Lord Jesus, we confess that, that we treat you wrongly, that our faith is often very confused, that we have sometimes a, a get-what-I-want-and-then-leave kind of faith, a transactional faith, that we have sometimes a do-what-I-must-to-appease-you kind of faith, a vending-machine-God faith, that we have sometimes a I-can't-manage-I-can-manage-it-most-of-the-time-on-my-own kind of faith instead of this, God, I need you all the time. And so, Holy Spirit of God, thank you for your power that is available for us. Thank you, God, for your power, your spirit's power to turn off the faucet of lust and to turn on the faucet of trust, to trade fleshly and sinful desires with the pure desires that your grace alone can form within us. Jesus, take us from the wretched experience of Romans 7 into the restful experience of Romans 8. God, our Father, help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is you at work in us, in us, both to will and to do according to your good pleasure. 
Lord, do this for your glory in us and for our good. We ask it in Jesus' name. Lord God, we can see because you have shown us that on our own, by our own strength, we don't love you with all of our heart and all of our mind, all of our strength. By our own vices, we can't please you in the way that you've designed us to. In fact, all of the things that we just sang we can't do on our own. To bow down before you as Lord of all, even just to come to the altar, that is something that you lead us to. And so we thank you for this amazing gift of this wonderful, glorious helper, your Holy Spirit, that you poured out at Pentecost and that you've given us, that helps us and guides us and changes us and gives us the power, your power, to honor you like you are meant to be honored. And I pray that you would continue to do that in us. May we continue to be open to how you are working in us. May we continue to be attentive to your spirit and may Jesus Christ be honored. And we pray all of this in his precious name. Amen. Have a wonderful day. Amen.